Welcome to Friday and welcome to Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis in for Bill Radke. Joining us today are Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama. Elise, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Seattle Times editorial board member Claudia Rowe. Thanks for having me. And insider investigations correspondent Catherine Long, who I find myself with on this show frequently. Hey, Mike. Hey, Catherine. Hey, um, before I go into the first issue, I just wanted to say that this is in a way, a current and former Seattle Times All-Star team we've got here. I heard you folks talking in the, in the green room earlier, and everyone has like a very close connection to the Seattle Times. That's true. Yeah. I, Elise and I used to work at the Seattle Times together. I don't think Claudia and I ever overlapped. I don't think so. But, but, but now Claudia's, on, of course, on the editorial board there and was a reporter there on the, on the Education Lab team. Um, all right. So let's get into the issues of, issues of the day. The, a family of a trans teen filed a federal lawsuit this week after Washington insurer Montlake-based Primera Blue Cross denied gender-affirming care. Elise, you wrote the story for the Seattle Times. Can you walk us through what prompted the lawsuit? Yeah, definitely. So you, I think you summed it up well. There's a uh, there's a 15 year old um, in King County who is uh, hoping to get some gender affirming surgery. Um, obviously, this person is under 18, and so that's kind of where some of these issues pop up. <clears throat> um, this person has been getting medical care in King County um, for years now, and you know, as, as we reported, has been on some hormones for over a year now. Um, and so, you know, by by all other guidelines that are usually applied, um, and including medical recommendations, um, this teen should be able to access gender-affirming care and get it covered by insurance. Um, but Primera, who's covering this, um, is, is refusing to basically cover this particular surgery because this individual is under 18. So this is where kind of the issue comes up. I mean, again, his provider, their providers are hoping to um, are hoping to get this appealed, um, but they're working through this right now. And so at this point, Primera has not responded. Okay, so how consistent are insurers when it comes to gender affirming care? I mean, is this something that is standard to say, no, we won't before a certain age? Or is this something unusual with Primera? Um, that's a really good question. It, it does depend. Um, for those under 18, it is not uncommon for certain procedures to be denied by insurers. Um, but at the same time, in Washington, um, you know, demand is really increasing. A lot more teens and folks under 18 are searching for this type of care. So we've heard from some Seattle providers, at least, <clears throat> that um, that they're seeing these insurance battles pop up more and more. Um, it's, it's not necessarily uncommon. And so I think that we're probably going to see more, you know, cases like this in the future and moving forward. Um, it's just one of these, um, I think, the, these... These conversations that insurers and and medical providers are still struggling with. Well, and and let me ask this sort of to the to the group uh, to a degree. This is one of those issues. It's become a flashpoint nationally. Uh, Catherine, you were talking about this earlier that there seems to be a there is not seems to be there is a concerted effort uh, among more conservative states to limit this sort of care, to limit parents' ability and, uh, and use ability to choose this sort of care. Uh, Catherine, when you see this particular thing from Primera in Washington state, are you surprised? Yeah, frankly, I was shocked. I mean, Washington is not one of the 20 states that have banned or restricted gender-affirming care for minors. And what this case says to me is that in insurers uh, have been so cowed by this conservative fear-mongering campaign that they are acting independently of such legislative action. You know, as Elise was saying, all of the all of the healthcare guidelines suggest that gender affirming care, gender affirming surgery for minors after a considered period of therapy and other hormonal interventions is the best practice for teens who are experiencing gender dysphoria. And for a, an insurer to say, well, actually, no, uh, we are not going to cover this procedure unless, as Primera's medical director in this case said, the teen is displaying signs of self harm. That seems to be an, an egregious <laughs> uh, instance of medical malpractice, in my opinion. Claudia, I was going to ask you this because that was one of the things I seized on as well, that that seems like an unusual bar before you're going to actually provide gender-affirming care. When you read that, what did you think? Um, same thing. Uh, so it, it's, it implies they, you know, they want to see the child 
hurt hurt themselves some, first before we're going way. to actually do anything, right? And the um, discrepancy between allowing breast augmentation or reduction reduction surgery for um, traditionally identifying young people, minors, they, as as far as Elisa's story goes, that would be covered, right? But not um, for gender affirming surgery, which seems. Like that's, a, a, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Well, like I, will, I, will say, I will say that both of those surgeries could be considered gender affirming surgery, right? Like when mm-hmm. a teen is receiving a breast augmentation or a breast reduction, mm-hmm. I think one of the primary reasons they're doing so is to better conform with uh, stereotypical gender norms. Mm-hmm. And all these trans teens are asking is to receive the same level of care that other teens are already receiving. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's definitely something that um, the, this family's attorneys are arguing that, you know, this care exists for cisgender teens as well. And it's not questioned as much either the, you know, the fact that they're under 18 is not questioned. It's not brought up. It's not a requirement. Um, so I, th- I think that that's one of the, the big arguments in this complaint. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you, as you all have said, it's, the there's a world professional i think trans health association that you know comes out with these updated guidelines and according to this which you know as Catherine said is considered best practice um you know those under 18 are definitely you know this care should definitely be offered to to them in situations that should not escalate to self-harm or some of these really you know extreme measures that are noted in the complaint so i I suspect i know what the answer to this is going to be but i'm going to ask it anyway the insurer claimed in your story that clinical evidence was the reason for uh, their refusal of treatment in this particular case. Clinical evidence based on age. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm assuming that seemed to be the context of it. Did Primera ever provide any of this clinical evidence for this particular th- – you noted in the story that at the time you wrote the story, but there still has been no sort of point toward, hey, this study or that study mm-hmm. as a result of like sort of informing the decision by Primera? Yeah, it's interesting. They, they they did not. They declined to share any sort of research or studies that they were referencing in the complaint. Um, in general, in the U.S., the the research and the clinical evidence has been, you know, very very. The majority of research has suggested that gender affirming care for youth is, you know, brings them joy, brings them self confidence. You know, it leads to all of these, you know, better outcomes in terms of mental health. Um, and lack of access can can lead to higher rates of depression and anxiety and self-harm. And so I think that that's something that, you know, psychiatric, pediatric, medical associations in the U.S. are all pr- standing really firm on. Um, and some of the debate comes in with some of these this new these new studies or this new research out of Europe. Um, and they're, they're, the debate is unfolding there. You know, that's definitely true. I think they're are doctors and other medical providers who are looking at this and saying, we don't know, the science isn't really there. We think that it's still a bit early to um, to approve this for, for teens and young people. But again, American doctors are, are pretty adamant that that's not in keeping with Like the science. American Medical Association and whatnot, right, they've right. all said mm-hmm. probably okay, right? Right, right. Yeah, I want to I want to jump in here and just say, you know, when I um, survey the contours of this this debate, this discussion, uh, although, you know, I I don't really see it as a debate. I see it as uh, (laughs) one side declaring a war on trans people and another side listening to medical evidence. Mm -hmm. I think one of the issues that I hear raised most frequently is that we're trying to or by denying this gender affirming care, we're trying to protect kids from making decisions that they're going to later regret, that maybe these kids are being pressured by TikTok or by their peers or by celebrities that they admire to um, to have these life-altering surgeries. And I, I just want to quash that mm-hmm. <laughs> idea in the bud, right? When we look at the evidence that we have on how many young people regret undergoing gender-affirming surgeries, um, the number is very small. I mean, it varies from study to study, but it's somewhere between 1% and 10%. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the percentage of people who regret having uh, knee surgery, for instance, it's a third. <laughs> it's a third of people, right? I mean, there, there, there is a small amount of regret, but it is dwarfed by the amount of regret that people have for undergoing much more common, much more readily available, and certainly nearly always covered by insurance surgeries. Mm-hmm. And also dwarfed by rates of, you know, quote, quote, success and feelings of improved mental health. Yeah. When, when you were when you were writing the story, did you get the sense from the the lawyer uh, certainly involved, or I don't know if you spoke to any other legal experts, that this is 
one of those cases that could be a big one in terms of actually requiring insurance companies? I mean, is that the is that the effort here to sort of to not just to win this, but to set a larger precedent? That's a really good question. The I think that they are, you know, definitely cautious about where they are saying that they're going with this. But you know, it's a they filed it as class action complaint. So the idea there is that there are other patients out there who right. are being affected by Fremera's policies and who might want to join in for for similar um, for similar reasons. Wow. All right. So that that is so we'll be following that one as it as it moves along through the through the court system. Switching topics uh, quickly to the apparent. Random shooting death uh, this year of a pregnant woman in Belltown wasn't the only crime committed uh, with the 9mm Smith & Wesson handgun that fired the fatal shot. The weapon was also involved in a Tacoma drive-by shooting in 2021. This is, a, this is from data from a national crime a database. Uh, this was first reported in the Seattle Times. The crime lab report that, that uh, the stolen, illegal, and unregistered guns moved through the region on the black market pretty rapidly. Seattle Police Chief Adrian Diaz told the Times that one-third of the handguns the government, uh, rather the police department recovers, have been reported stolen. Claudia, uh, would you read a story like this? And given how much of your reporting through the years has intersected with crime and often violent crime, what do you think a city or state can do um, to, to, <laughs> to can do that actually will s- survive constitutional muster uh, to limit the spread of, uh, of stolen guns? See, uh, Washington State actually passed an initiative um, requiring safe storage um, in 2018. This is a voter initiative requiring safe safe storage. Um, However, jurisdictions have not been particularly aggressive about enforcing it. Um, I can Mm -hmm. think of, I know of only one um, case in Snohomish County where a mom was charged, um, I believe under this statute, um, for failing to secure her weapon after her child got it and used it to kill himself. So that's a pretty extreme and awful example. I mean, you can imagine this bereaved mom now slapped with um, criminal charges. However, um, in other cases where a, a teenager has um, stolen a gun um, and then used that gun in the case of, for instance, a murder that I wrote about, um, this was a... a a crime that happened in April 2020. A 13-year-old stole um, his girlfriend's mom's pistol. He might have been thinking of using it on himself, but in fact, he turned it on a man he had he had he didn't know. He had never spoken to a 35-year-old guy just who happened to be walking by. Um, that was a stolen gun. That woman did not. The woman he stole it from. Um, I believe did not report it, and she was not charged um, for for leaving this um, accessible to a young person. So, um, from what I can see, Washington has not been terribly rigorous in enforcing what what seems like at least one measure that might make a little bit of a dent in in terms of. Um, uh, enforcing existing law. <laughs> in, enforcing right. existing law as a deterrent. Right, mm-hmm. as right. a deterrent to this. Yeah, Claudia, I'm so glad you brought that up because this is one of my primary questions about this. How would anybody go about enforcing this law unless they were already in somebody's home on some other pretext? It seems like the only way that we might know or hear about a gun being poorly secured or illegally secured is after that gun has been used to commit a crime. Is that is that right or is there another way? I think I think you're exactly right. Um, so I think the deterrent factor is 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 the leverage right like if you if i think the highest you can get charged for this is um believe I, there is a felony charge but i think mostly it's gross misdemeanor mm-hmm. um so that's you know not huge not a huge penalty however um if, if we made examples of people who um failed to store their guns and 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 this deterrence became more widely known more of a threat i think it might impel people, compel people to, to lock up their guns better. Well, and to your point earlier, this this struck me when you were saying this, that I think that there is this understandable hesitancy to charge someone, especially if it's something bad happened to someone in their own family. I mean, no one wants to lose a child, right? And 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 particularly in a situation like this where you know you didn't put something away the way you should have because you felt like, well, I'm worried about my own safety. I'm going to keep this where I can get to it quickly. And it turns out that, that so can so can a kid in some cases. I mean, is there? do you feel like there's this 
uh, lack of desire, or or do you think that that maybe is in some ways born of just sympathy of piling on to somebody who's already been through a tragedy? Good question. I mean, I can't I can't read a prosecutor's right. mind, or or um, but from so I called the King County Prosecutor's Office this morning to find out about that that case I just discussed right. with you the the thirteen year old who stole his girlfriend's mother's gun and used it in a murder. Um, that case was twenty twenty. After, you know, after the initiative was passed, it was never referred to the prosecutor's office, they tell me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's what I mean about, um, you know, were the police reluctant to pile on? I can't really, you know, read any police officer's mind either, but... They don't always seem reluctant to pile on. I right. Mean, depending I don't on, think depending that's on it. Who's I think being charged and for what? That's, right. That's I think there thing. might be other right. um, concerns at play, such as not really liking that law to begin with. Huh. Right. Mm. So, Claudia, I have another question for you. Um, one thing I noticed in the Seattle Times article about this Belltown shooting is uh, that police also seized a drum magazine. Could you describe what that is for us? Do you no, know? because <laughs> I, I am not a firearms expert and I didn't write that story. <laughs> So I'm just gonna. I can probably I can probably yeah, give you probably a quick better on yeah that. quick a quick description <laughs> on that. It's it's I didn't know these were available for handguns. What you, it sort of looks like when you see the old gangster movie and and you see a Tommy gun. That's the 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 machine oh, gun wow. with a rat with a circular clip. That means that that the you can store more in a smaller and more compact area. Oh. And apparently these are available now. It have been for a while, I'm guessing, because I'm no expert either, for handguns. But it renders a handgun with a 50-round capacity. And some people, and even in law enforcement, have said what we need to worry about is magazine size, the size of these clips. Right. Um, because sometimes people get saved on the reload when someone is using mm-hmm. a low-capacity weapon and people have a chance to maybe get away in one of these larger shootings. So I think that that's, what, uh, that's what's being referenced here. And that's also been one of the things that law enforcement has discussed uh, but they're finding those along with these stolen guns. And so uh, it seems like maybe not uh, not such a great situation. We're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back with Week in Review. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome back to Week in Review. Uh, joining us uh, again, uh, Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama, Seattle Times editorial board member Claudia Rowe, and business insider investigations correspondent Catherine Long. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Mike Lewis filling in for Bill Radke. Wow. So there is one $3 trillion company in the world, and that's Apple. But if the trend holds, it looks like Redmond's Microsoft is going to be joining that exclusive club, Club of Two. Uh, according to a story by GeekWire editor Taylor Soper, and to explain when we say the most valuable company in the world, we're using one specific figure, something called market capitalization, which means the total value of a company's stock. And fortunately with us today, we do have a tech expert in Catherine Long. Catherine, is $3 trillion of company valuation worth crowing about? And what's the reason for the recent valuation climb for Microsoft? Oh, I mean, it's certainly worth crowing about. I mean, it's an indicator <laughs> that that people take, people think your company is valuable. And if people think your company is valuable, then it certainly is valuable. Um, <laughs> what appears to be happening to me is that Microsoft's huge bet on AI, its investment in open AI in particular, is paying off incredibly well, and perhaps sooner than the company had anticipated. I mean, Microsoft has already been pushing its developers to integrate generative AI into its products. Um, and it's also asked its its employees to use AI regularly when they're doing their jobs, per- wow. <laughs> perhaps as a way to um, uh, normalize the use among, among other uh, among its clients. Um, and I think more broadly, I mean, the AI boom seems to be reversing some of the more dire sentiment we saw earlier this year about the tech industry. Uh, my colleagues have reported that investor interest in AI-related startups is up after investors sort of pumped the brakes on on putting money into the tech startup scene earlier this year. And share prices for other tech giants uh, like Amazon, for instance, that are broadcasting investments in AI uh, have recovered significantly since dipping pretty low at the end of 2022. Amazon has said that it's going to integrate more AI features into its Alexa voice assistant. Uh, This is after Amazon laid off a ton of people who worked on Alexa and then then immediately began hiring some of those folks back uh, to to make Alexa bigger and better. 
I think from my perspective, you know, one liability I could see here is that maybe this is all a bubble. Um, I've used a lot of, uh, I've, I've played around with generative AI a lot in my job. I'm on a little um, AI pilot team that uh, my my publication Insider is running, uh, trying to see how we can use AI to uh, propel our journalism. Um, but at the moment, its capabilities remain severely limited. Right. <laughs> it's not worrying you about taking your job. It is not worrying me. I okay. mean, when I when I play around with AI, I mean, it's it's uh, it's cool in a lot of ways uh, in that it's able to pump out a huge volume of words or uh, write me some Excel macros more quickly than I could do myself. Um, but, you know, the the pitfalls are, are large and terrifying. I'm thinking about Bloomberg GPT, right. uh, which is right. a large language model that's been trained on decades of Bloomberg's financial reporting. Um, this is like probably the top performing financial generative AI tool on the market right now, according to a recent study by its authors. And it is still not 100% accurate in giving you the names of publicly traded CEOs. So (laughs) you got to watch out. Well, at least let me ask you a quick question about this. So when you, we definitely do a lot of market capitalization fetishizing almost in business reporting. And and I'm wondering when you see that as a person who's – you're working on you – know, some of these big companies are also health, health companies. But honestly, yeah. when you just as – a, as a citizen of this area, when you see Microsoft is pushing to $3 trillion in valuation, what does it make you think? Um, I, I am a little scared, to be honest. Right. <laughs> I think that Why? that's – yeah, I think that that is you – know, as Catherine said, is evidence that there's value in that, that, there, that this investment is paying off. And that you know it could lead to a lot of uh, you know new exciting ways to do our current jobs you know but I think the maybe one of the biggest and you know the biggest concerns for people who aren't necessarily in the space is just you know at what cost and you know how far are we pushing and what does our increased reliance on this kind of technology mean and you know what 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 might be the dangers of that and I think that that's definitely something that I think about you know I think for. Our jobs as journalists, you know, as Catherine said, there are a lot of really helpful uses for this. I mean, we already a lot of AI programs, our transcription services, for example, save so much time. Um, I think a lot of reporters in our newsroom use that, too. Um, Otter AI is Otter AI is is so popular. And it's pretty remarkable, right? It's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I think Slack also like can transcript recordings if you if you upload the file. But yeah, I think, you know, just as like a person who, who doesn't, you know, is not an expert in this field it's it makes me a little uneasy still well and let me let me turn to claudia let's talk about sort of when you see it because we're going into the next uh this is one i've been really you know excited to talk about a poll that shows generally i guess 50 just barely over 50 percent of folks feel like tech has been a net boom to seattle but let me ask you claudia let me tie these both in when you see this this massive sort of valuation of a company and you also see the effect of tech on Seattle, when do you think that there is a is a through line between seeing Microsoft being potentially moving into that three trillion dollar category as the only other company in the world, along with Apple, uh, getting to that point, and what you look around Seattle and see as far as cost of living and uh, and lifestyle and what is good and maybe not as good about Seattle. I think that um, and the East Side, I guess, to, since since it is a Redmond based company. <laughs> so I think that. An interesting answer to a question that you didn't exactly pose um, is uh, is actually in Gene Balk's column today, which which shows a divide between um, you know is tech it's it's Amazon it's pegged to Amazon, but it's really tech is everything is right it's, it's <laughs> um, is tech making Seattle a better place to live or not? And um, I think that's what what, what yeah, you're going to right. Um, so long timers in Seattle thought. No, thought it's making <laughs> Seattle worse. Obviously, it's making Seattle very, very different, and people are often resistant to change. Right? Um, people who grew up here, of course, are going to see their their region, you know, in, intensely transformed. Now, when did you? Before I let's go around the the panel real oh, quick. So when did you? <laughs> when did you arrive in town, Claudia? 2003. It, yeah, so, just after I had. I right. arrived in 2000. So I'm a 20 year, so I think right. I would be considered a newcomer. 
not in Gene Balk's story, but right. in like two real Seattle. Civically. Um, civically. However, I mean, I I love Seattle. Right. So I, I mean. At least how long you been in town? Um, I moved here most, I guess I officially moved here in 2020, but my family is from here and I was born here. You were born here and then went away and then right. came back. Mm-hmm. And Catherine? I was born in Bellevue in the early 90s, so technically I'm a lifelong resident. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. So we actually have, I've been here 20, I guess 23 years. It was June 2000 when I moved here from California. Um, so, so to your point, and let's, and that, that's a, the, the story we're referring to, not just the gene, which actually is a great sort of uh, addendum to the story. It actually right. informs the story. It was a poll done by the Seattle Times and Suffolk University uh, about tech and how you feel about what changes tech has wrought to Seattle and whether or not you think it's been a good thing. And, and what was surprising to me was because it's hard to know. Like, it depends on what circle you're in, like what sort of feedback loop you get in on people always complaining about, you know, the Amazon industrial complex near South Lake Union or people who are working in that and feel like they're making good money and maybe they have like an apartment or a house that they actually like and want to live in and they see Seattle as this like booming tech town as opposed to this former fishing town or former logging town or whatever it is. I mean, Catherine, when you saw the the poll, what was your reaction? Did you see, did you feel like this was a, it's a, what about 51 per, 51.4%? Yeah. Did you feel like that was lower than you would have expected or higher than you would have expected in terms of the positive feeling about tech? Right. Honestly, I thought that was lower. Um, and, you know, I'm just going off, I guess, a a very unscientific temperature gauge of the folks that I've, I've, I speak to. But, you know, I think in general, I speak to a lot of people who are um, detractors of Amazon's tech scene. But I think even a lot of those people acknowledge that there have been significant benefits that have been brought to Seattle by Amazon. I mean, it's not like any of us were exactly raring to go to South Lake Union before Amazon <laughs> redeveloped it. Fair I don't point. know about Fair you. <laughs> and, you know, I think I think something else that I've been considering um, as, as somebody who is notably not Amazon's biggest fan, I used to cover Amazon and, and, and probably, uh, I think it's fair to say, quite critically, um, I... I think that we place too much blame at Amazon's uh, Amazon's doorstep for changing the city's culture. I think that, you know, this company has been in our city for more than two decades at this point. Uh, there have been numerous points along the way where we could have said, hey, something about our city is changing in a way that we don't like. And we are going to reallocate public spending to try to uh, prevent that change or slow that change or give grants to artists or make sure that the fun dive bars that we all love in Seattle and, and give great opportunities to music artists to to perform, uh, stay in business. We could have done that as a city and we chose not to. Um, so I, I don't think that we can entirely blame Amazon for some of these cultural changes. Well, some of them are like exactly what you said. It's not Amazon. It's Amazon's potentially ripple effect, right, right. On, on a city like that. At least when you, when you arrived back in town, I, if you obviously you were born here, uh, the city changed pretty massively. It, changed, it was changing rapidly over two-year periods, much less 10-year periods or longer than that. Do you feel like the city now is, is something closer to what you'd want a big city to be than it was when you were young? Younger. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I truly, I mean, I'm not a good person to ask to compare because I moved, I grew up in Southern California. I don't really consider my, any of my childhood to be in Seattle. Um, but what my, what my family has said generally, I mean, they occasionally grumble about all the changes. Right. You know, I still have aunts and uncles and, and relatives who are in Washington. Um, a lot of them are, you know, moving further out of the city or are in South King, South King County um, because, because you know, I think that that's not just for my family, but I mean, generally prices are getting so like to rental prices are getting so high and a lot of people are moving out of the city. I think, you know, that maybe is one of the ripple effects of all these tech workers coming in right. and, you know, their salaries are so much higher. Everything else gets more expensive. Um, so I think that that's something that is definitely being felt by people who have been here for generations. Um you know, my some of my older family members definitely are, you know, grumbling right. about the, the just the tech worker aspect in general, you know, and all the stereotypes that are come with that. Are you doing any grumbling but... or you feel pretty good about it? Um, I, I... How would you have... Let, let me just ask... Let me ask the entire group here. Why don't we just go ahead and ask you individually the question? The survey question was, has the tech industry improved life in Seattle? Yes or no? 
What do you think? At least first. I think no. No? And what? And why? I think that um, I, th- I think that what Catherine is saying is definitely true. I think we do blame Amazon too much for a lot of these cultural community changes over decades. Um, I think I'm generally just wary of um, of of all the wave of tech change and and how you know it has it has changes. It's personally not necessarily where I'm most interested and in, where I find community. And right. so I think just for that reason, um, I'm probably going to be more lean more toward wanting something that is more you know arts based or you know a little bit more um, centered within these different community hubs that have maybe been been, been uh, closed down or right. fall into some of these high high prices but um, but yeah I would probably say no okay well Claudia let me ask you if you were asked this question uh, 20 years ago when you got into town and you were asked this question yesterday would you have changed would your answer have changed at all I can't I can't imagine what my answer would have been when I when I got to town. But I can say that um, the widening of um, the income disparity, um, the widening income disparity that is a function of tech Mm -hmm. um, and and the Amazon effect, I, I think, is a serious detriment. I think it is a serious problem and has really changed um, the character of Seattle, even from when I showed up in 2003. There's a clear change. And even then was sort of, you know, the start of this change, or the end of what came before, maybe. Right. Um, uh, and I, and I, that pains me. I, I mean, it does. And I, and I, I'm sure it's obnoxious to wax nostalgic from someone who's been here 20 years. I'm sure that's irritating. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, the, the change is stark in 20 years, and I don't think it's in a great direction. Catherine, you? Uh, I think if you asked me, uh, has, um, has the fact that our local political institutions have allowed themselves to be co-opted by tech interests positively or negatively affected the city? I would say definitely negatively. <laughs> <laughs> that was what I was going to ask. That's a great point. <laughs> you know, I, I think that... I think that um, for far too long until really very recently, there has been absolutely no discussion of some of these very real negative impacts of importing hundreds of thousands of very highly paid people to this city and allowing things like this wealth gap to flourish, allowing things like people to uh, be forced out of the city because the prices are too high, allowing displacement of our black community. I mean, this is these are all things that are certainly linked to tech, and these are all things that had people... Uh, recognize them sooner and been willing to act sooner, we maybe could have done something about before or, it got to this point. But um, they, well, they didn't. People so. in city council could have right, exactly, exactly. Right. We are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Week in Review. Welcome back. Week in Review. Joining us, uh, I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, joining us are Seattle Times editorial board member Claudia Rowe. Joining us also is Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama and business insider investigations correspondent Catherine Long. I'm Mike Lewis, filling in for Bill Radke. It's become the summertime Pacific Northwest ritual along the lines of seafare and Dungeness crab season and everyone complaining when the temperature hits 80 degrees. You <laughs> guessed it. I'm talking about lousy air quality. KUW's Dyer Oxley and Diana Apong reported this week that Washington's air is unhealthy for everyone in parts of Marysville, Seattle, Tukwila, Auburn, Tacoma. list goes on. According to the State Department of Ecology, sensitive groups should limit their time outdoors uh, in north of Seattle and around Olympia and Bremerton as well, where smoke from wildfire burning near Shelton is clogging up the air. And the problem is, as broadly speaking, is wildfires here and in Canada lack a win. This is not the rainy season, which is great, but the downside to that is, of course, the air stays a lot, a lot with a lot more particulate matter. But there's one big culprit that uh, we don't talk about a lot, and that is fireworks. Now, not meaning to be sort of uh, raining on the parade, but I'm going to ask the panel. I'm going to insist on a direct answer. Let's go straight to the straight to the point. Should Washington ban at this point with the bad air every year? Should Washington just go ahead and ban fireworks? Claudia, 
I'm sorry to people who get angry at this, but I think Washington should ban private use of fireworks. Um, I think for the primarily for the wildfire danger, um, you know, the touching off even an, an even worse problem. Right. And then for all the dogs and the light sleepers and the kids who are really sometimes quite traumatized by, you know, it can be like 24 hours. I mean, right. it's well beyond it, the one hour. It definitely hour. is 24 hours. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, and um, my own kid complained. So that that's where I come down. Um, I, I love fireworks personally as, you know, I loved fireworks as a child. But I I can't have that much misery around me. <laughs> At least what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, Claudia. I, it's it's not a hill to die on. I, if, you know, the the at this point, I think the dangers, the wildfire dangers, are too extreme and too real. And you know, I love I love sparklers as much as the next person, but I don't think it's worth it. All right, Kathleen or Catherine, are we going to get to unanimity here? Or are you going to come in the yeah, pro fireworks we're a, side of things? We're, we're a trio of firework haters. <laughs> it seems on this panel. Um, I mean, what was it like? Every every wildfire over the past week in Washington State was started by fireworks. Something that, like that. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, what I will say though is, I was talking uh, last week with somebody who used to work uh, for Renton's fire department, and he was in charge of going around and seizing illegal fireworks. And he said that people were uh, not not altogether enthusiastic to hand wow. over their fireworks. Wow. Surprise, I'm sure surprise. they were not. <laughs> I'm sure that was not a fun job. No, yeah, I don't think he recalled it very fondly. But I'll, I'll, I bring that up to, to say that, you know, if we ban fireworks, we're going to have to come up with some kind of fireworks seizure task force. Well, and also I don't and I don't actually know what the law is here, but I mean if even if you ban it sort of being sold, I don't know that that ban a state ban could apply to tribal lands where a lot of the big fireworks stands are. I don't know what the state's ability to to actually stop that would be anyway. I mean it could be that just all of the fireworks sales move to specific areas of the state and don't actually disappear at all. Well, but the other problem with air quality and, and honestly, the more serious long-term generational problem with air quality is that bad air is disproportionately worse in low-income and former redlined neighborhoods. And it's, it's impossible to contain pollution to one area of a city. But is there anything that a city can do? And we found that this is true in, in very true in, in Seattle. Is there anything a city can do? Uh, to help mitigate the the it tends to we tend to have one thing that happens a lot in in big urban areas in the United States that that lower income neighborhoods have worse air that's almost true I don't know of a major city in America that that is not true and at least from the studies that I've read is there anything a city can actually do uh, to help mitigate Claudia do you do, to mitigate this I don't know I I'm interested in I my answer is I don't know but I'd be very curious to hear how much tree cover. Does um, well, there's another correlation there, right? With right. How much tree cover uh, lower income neighbors have compared neighborhoods have compared to uh, more expensive neighborhoods? Exactly. I did a I did a little looking into um, Seattle's parks a couple of weeks ago, and we are incredibly highly rated for our access in every area of the city to large green spaces. So that suggests to me that green that trees parkland do not mitigate enough, right? right? If everybody's close to it, but but still lower income areas have much worse air, obviously a nearby park with lots of trees is not doing it. So that's not enough. Absolutely. And Catherine, you uh, had a personal anecdote uh, oh, about this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was uh, sharing before the show that I live uh, down in South Seattle. And what strikes and annoys me is that um, on many misty mornings, I can I can smell and taste jet fuel from one of the two oh airports that are within 10 miles of me. And it's it's foul. It's disgusting. What I'll say more generally about um, air quality issues in, uh, in majority minority neighborhoods is, you know, one angle that I've looked at them in the past is from truck emissions. I mean, we know that um, warehouses and industrial uses are more regularly sited near formerly redlined neighborhoods. Right. And we've seen a actually a, a fairly significant um, backlash to that in recent years. A lot of cities have decided that they are no longer going to allow those types of uses to be built uh, within their city limits. They've been uh, pushing for uh, more stringent regulations on the hours that trucks are allowed to operate, and they've been asking trucking operators to electrify their fleets. So I think that's, mm. you know, one option to mitigate one source of it. <laughs> 
air pollution uh, that's affecting uh, minority residents. It's, uh, you know, certainly got, not going to tackle our wildfire smoke, though. When you were in, I mean, when you were in Southern California, for example, at least, uh, where in Southern California were you living at the time? Um, Pasadena. Pasadena area. So when you got up to, when you moved to Seattle, were you expecting, I, I know I was when I moved from California to Seattle, I was expecting, like, <laughs> crystal clear air all the time. And it, and it weirdly enough, we had more months like that uh, when I got here than we certainly than we do now. I mean, have you do you feel like when you're out, I don't know what neighborhood you live in, but when you're out and about, do you feel like there is a, a significant air quality problem in Seattle that you're dealing with? Um, compared to growing up in L.A., I, 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 my experience has been that it's much better. Yeah, I mean, we right. all hear about the L.A. smog. It's, you know, it, it makes the sunsets great, but it is a very real thing. And my allergies were worse in L.A. And, you know, that has gone down since I've moved up here. Um, but that being said, I mean, the past few summers, I think we've all especially noticed during wildfire season that basically any part of Seattle um, is going to be kind of coated in, right. in some sort of, you know, particulate matter. And the problem is that that the areas that have an ambient higher level of pollution just get that layered on top of something exactly. that, they're already, that they're already dealing with. And also, sort of switching tracks slightly, but on a similar sort of, sort of note, uh, Seattle, the, the, the Seattle Times reported that the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on Thursday gutting race-conscious admissions policies will affect private colleges in the state for the first time. And, and this is also something that is going to disproportionately affect people, many times people, certainly people of color, but also people of lower income. For 25 years, Washington has barred its public universities and colleges, California has as well, uh, from using race in admissions um, as a result of a ballot measure, but the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision getting race-conscious admissions will also affect thousands of students here because it's now going to affect the private colleges as well. They had been exempt from the state law, and it's not true anymore. Claudia, before the show, you referenced uh, an education trust study that gave the University of Washington a D uh, for black student enrollment, uh, which was down from a C on a prior survey. How do you think the Supreme Court decision is going to affect that grade? So, right. They are now, they, uh, as of 2017, UW was, was correct, rated a D. Um, this was based on its enrollment of black students. It was rated an F for Latino students, by the way. And this was based on, enro- on the enrollment of black and Latino students compared to their rate in the population, 18 to 24-year-olds in the population. So, um from what I saw in that education trust study, um, things got even worse after the law was passed. Um, it got immediately worse than they were. We were a C, then we were now down to a D. Um, I know the UW has made really concerted efforts to address this. And I guess that the the lesson that I take from all of it is, from what I can see, there's very incremental, truly incremental improvement there, but tiny. Um, and so to address it, you, you really have to be intentional. Uh, I am very interested in what other states are doing around the so-called adversity index, right. um, which is essentially trying to address a similar cohort of students, but doing kind of an end run around the race question. Right. Trying to get some sort of a, a collateral thing that groups that same group of students, but doesn't say Correct. race. Right. To make it to you know, court decision proof. At least when you read, when you saw this, and you saw now that it's going to e- extend beyond the public universities, but to private universities, do you feel like there is something that these universities can do to address this address this issue now that their one tool is is out of the bag? Um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm I haven't reported on this topic, and so definitely. Um have a lot of questions about that myself. Right. Um, I, I don't really know. I think that, um, you know, what what the Seattle Times story with Dahlia Bazaz reported is that, you know, private universities are definitely exploring their, their options right now in terms of finding out, you know, how much they can play into perhaps, you know, in an income-based um, scale or something like that to, to look at candidates as well or to look at, you know, target, really look at diversifying the pool of applicants um, before they, you know, have submitted. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see. I think California has done a much better job 
um, I think California's public universities, at least do you know, uh, has, I mean, with the, under this under a similar kind of law, um, has done better than Washington's. So what? Cal- weirdly enough, I was a reporter down there and I wrote about that? this. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> what California did was, I thought it was kind of a genius end run on it. Uh, the university, it, it was a lawsuit against uh, in a public uh, first a lawsuit and then a public ballot measure, which was sort of tracked similar to what happened in Washington State. The University of California system was. Uh, had to change its policies. The University of California system said, all right, we're just going to go and take the top 10% or potentially admit, allow the top 10% to be eligible of every high school in the state. And so what they did was they actually did kind of a nice job of gathering in schools that didn't have AP classes and schools that didn't have. And they just said, if you're in Parlier, California, which is a mostly a farm worker town, it's I think the school at the time when I was writing about it was 78% Latino and and did not have any AP courses. There was no such thing as international baccalaureate uh, classes. But then suddenly that school was having much more, many more students go into the UC system as a result. They're top students. And so, but it still didn't. So it improved Latino representation, did not improve African-American representation over the course of the 10-year study after that happened. And so they've since made adjustments to that original plan. But but Catherine, when I was, when I was, I was curious what you thought about this, because it is – there are other ways. Well, let's, let me just ask everyone here. Did you, do you feel like where you went to school was a from – a, from, a, from a diversity standpoint, was representative of even the town uh, that your school was in? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I, w- I went to Brown University, which is uh, consistently one of the least representative uh, universities <laughs> in the country. Right. I think it has one of the lowest percentages of people with Pell Grants and one of the highest percentages of uh, legacy admitted admits <laughs> mm-hmm. in the country. Uh, no, certainly not. Certainly not representative. I did want to touch on your point about the California University scheme, Mike, because every university in Washington State except UW, I believe, follows a similar a similar scheme where they allow mm-hmm. any anybody with above a 3.0 GPA to be eligible. Um, oh, interesting. And, and that seems to have, uh, you know, um, uh, mitigated some of the effects of the 1998 ruling that, that abolished affirmative action in public universities in Washington. And then in terms of what could be done, one suggestion I read from Richard Rothstein in The Atlantic uh, last month, uh, he's sort of the preeminent scholar on um, redlining, <laughs> uh, is civil disobedience. He suggested that mm-hmm. universities just not follow this rule, which um, is certainly an option and wow. maybe one that I, I wonder if some universities are discussing. Well, yeah, except to the extent that you get federal money, I would imagine that there's going to be a little right. bit of concern about that. <laughs> uh, but, but it does make you I mean that is also one one uh, possibility, uh, at least where you went to. I mean, no one needs to disclose their college if they don't want to. I went to San Jose State, so I'll say it. But but um, what uh, what do you feel like your school was representative of the community that that it was in, or representative of the state that it was in? Um, as far as as far as diversity of population, yeah. I also went to a private school. I went to Boston University, um, which is kind of right in the heart of Boston. Um, and I I don't I don't think it was. Um, I mean, for one, I think that our international student population was really really high, um, and. But in general, I mean, our, our students of color percentage was um, was definitely much higher, I think, than than the city in general. Oh, than Boston in general. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that probably makes some yeah. sense. Claudia, yeah. what about you? I went to college in Vermont, which is an incredibly white state, <laughs> yeah. and I was in an incredibly white school. But um, I would say, even there, it was not at all representative. Um, it was a it was a much wealthier white population than the population of Vermont. And so when you think about your own schools and you think about, uh, did you have a sense? Now, the school I went to, weirdly enough, was the first, I think, the first major university in the United States. Weirdly enough, I still, this, I carry this resentment around with me. They wrote about UC Berkeley when it happened. It happened like a year after us. Uh, at San Jose State, was the first minority majority uh, big school in America because it was all, it's always been a school like that. But did you feel like your school could have when you were there was it apparent to you that it was well i mean probably it sounds like to you it's very apparent that your school claudia was was exceptionally white uh, did it feel to you like like an affirmative action program would have benefited a stronger maybe a more a tougher affirmative action program would have benefited your school absolutely right i mean absolutely affirmative action in a number of categories. Right. I mean, at the school I went to had a very high percentage of kids on some kind of financial aid, but still, um, 
I mean, it was shocking. It was it. This was in the 1980s. I'll just age myself, right? It was in the 1980s, and it was shocking then. I mean, everybody there f- could see it, could f- could talk talked about it. I right. mean, it it was a known thing. It was <laughs> awkward. And uh, Catherine, in your school, let's, let's just go with back with Brown. We don't need to beat up on Brown too much today. But oh, I'm happy to beat up on Brown. <laughs> okay, then let's then let's continue. Yeah. <laughs> um, when when do you feel like that? And and I thought that. There was always a push, and in fact, one of the major lawsuits was against uh, another, and Brown is an Ivy League school, as I understand it, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, it was against Harvard and its admission policies. I mean, do you feel like the, that Brown was just not as aggressive as some other schools in implementing some form of affirmative action? Um, I, mean, could, I don't know. I don't know if I could gauge that. My my reading of the reason that uh, the reason why Harvard was sued is because it's such a big name, um, right? And you know, gets the, a lot of attention, right? right? The prestige of getting to Harvard is is so high. Um, I, honestly, I think that if if the Ivy League schools abolished their uh, legacy admissions policy, that that would go a long way mm-hmm. <laughs> towards towards diversifying its student body. Well, and, and it looks like some of that is actually happening. All right, right. we're actually at the – boy, that show went by quickly. Um, <laughs> we're at the end of the show. You have an opportunity. I know that I could – in the green room, I heard uh, – Claudia in a mild panic about the smile section of the show. and It's the hardest question. <laughs> Always. For, the hardest for, question. For, for, for I, weirdly enough, myself. have I never have one. I have two, but I will defer to the panel. If anyone has anything this week that made them that made them smile, otherwise I'll say mine. I, I have something, but it's it's pop culture. Oh, let's hear it. it. Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. The Bear, right? Yes. This, oh, this nice. show that everyone is talking about, within the show that everyone is talking about, there's this one particular episode that is remarkable for television. It's called Fishes. It's in the second, it's I think episode six of the second season. It's, it's some sort of other level in television history. Wow. It Whoa. it will be noted in television wow. history. I'm going to have to watch that. It's worth it. I don't yeah. watch The Bear, but it's on my list. It should be on your list. All right. With that, uh, I won't get to my smiles, but I'll sell them after the oh, show. Come on. Uh, <laughs> we've got to get out of here now. Uh, thanks for joining us on Weekend Review, and thanks to Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama, Seattle Times editorial board member Claudia Rowe, and insider investigations correspondent Catherine Long. Thank you all. Uh, Weekend Review is produced by Kevin Kniestet, social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and uh, Tio Popescu. Catherine Banwell is running as chairperson of the board. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Lewis. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.